Hey, guess what, Rebecca? Oh, I don't know. This is this is very open. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. What? Tell me. It could be anything, but it is, in fact, that we have launched a special subscription offer for the listeners of the Third Sector podcast. Ooh, that's nice. It is nice. I like it a lot. So listeners mm. <laughs> who sign up to Third Sector's The Information Package can now get 50% off the first three months of their subscription when they pay by quarterly direct debit. All they need to do is go to www.thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to get involved. And when you do that, you will gain access to our brilliant magazine, unlimited news stories, high value sector analysis, and of course, lots more views and opinions from myself and yourself. Which, you know, if you're listening to the Third Sector podcast, clearly you're not adverse to. You're, you're OK with it at the very <laughs> least, if not actively enjoying it. Uh, so where do they need to go to get that again? Oh, thank you so much for asking, Rebecca. Um, they need to go to www thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to sign up today. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, we are discussing the week's charity news. It's been an interesting one. The National Trust debate has flared up again, at the same time as a completely neutral Brexit museum has been granted charitable status. And Oxfam has come under fire in the national press again, but the Charity Commission says it already knew about the case concerned. We've also got news that the London Marathon has launched a new fundraising event in memory of Captain Sir Tom Moore. And as ever, we have our coronavirus care package, a roundup of charity good news stories from the past week. This week, the National Trust said it is open to debate its shared history after a new pressure group attracted thousands of members in an attempt to force the charity to, quote, regain the nation's trust. The Restored Trust describes itself as a grassroots movement of 6,100 current and former members of the National Trust that was set up following the report the charity published in September. So this was the one that showed the connection between 93 of the National Trust's historic houses and colonialism and historic slavery. So we've spoken about this report on the podcast several times before, um, and most listeners will know that the research sparked fierce debate on social media about the charity's work, and it caused the Charity Commission to open a compliance case into the National Trust. So in March, the regulator found that there were no grounds for regulatory action. And to be very, very crystal clear, the National Trust did absolutely nothing wrong when it published this report. But despite the Commission's findings, the so-called Restore Trust has said it would like to see the charity get back to what the pressure group calls its quote-unquote real mission. On its website, the Restore Trust says its aims include conservation, so helping the National Trust look after its collections, restoring the aesthetic experience of the National Trust properties so that visitors can enjoy them visually, spatially and sometimes peacefully without intrusive interpretation, and restoring the Trust's what it calls original apolitical ethos in the presentation and management of all its properties, and to support the charity in doing what it does best. They also say they want to promote the presentation of history responsibly as a tool for understanding, not as a weapon. 
They don't really say how the report was using history as a weapon, but anyway. It's this bit about being apolitical that I find really interesting. Um, A lot of the group's language on their website echoes what the then chair of the Charity Commission, Baroness Stahl, said uh, in the Mail on Sunday last year, that charity should be an antidote to politics. And this chimes with uh, something I've been working on for the next edition of the magazine, which should be hitting doorsteps around the 15th of April. So I've been working on a piece looking at the historical interplay between charities and politics. And spoilers, they've always been connected. So I spoke to uh, Rodri Davies for the piece. He's the head of policy at the Charities Aid Foundation and self-confessed history nerd. And he says one of the most irritating elements of what he calls the weaponization of history, demonstrated by the National Trust debate, is the implication that charity involvement in politics is somehow this unwelcome new development. And as he says, this just isn't the case. He says it's almost exactly the opposite. If you look at the history of UK charity and voluntary organisations, the role they've played in campaigning and advocacy and giving voice to marginalised groups and communities has been just as important as, if not more important than, their service provision role. And he says it does a disservice to history to suggest otherwise. And, you know, you can point to any number of campaigns, the abolition of slavery, votes for women, the Clean Air Act, the legalisation of homosexuality and abortion, the introduction of mandatory seatbelts, the Disability Discrimination Act, the right to roam. All of them have had heavy charity involvement. It's perhaps unfair to say charities led those campaigns, but they were very, very involved and very key in in getting that change made. Um Um, So for the piece, I also spoke to Chloe Hardy, who is the Director of Policy and Communications at the Sheila McKechnie Foundation. So they're a charity which supports charity campaigners. And she warned that this idea that charities should just keep out of politics risks creating what she calls a dangerous greyness in public discourse, which frames anything that is seen as political as being off limits for charities and ultimately the general public. Whether consciously or unconsciously, commentators have begun conflating political activity with party political activity, she says. And this leaves us with the notion that democratic debate should only be allowed by elected politicians. And I don't think anyone would want that to be the case. So the important distinction there, right, is between political activity and party political activity. Charities are not allowed to be party political to campaign for a political party. Right. But being political, you know, Chloe Hardy points out that politics and being political is in every aspect of our lives from whether the bus turns up on time to whether the bins get taken away whether we get paid leave for our jobs whether we can find jobs in the first place and of course charity is political um it it is a political decision to decide that someone needs extra support and that that should happen that you're going to intervene to make sure it does happen or that there should be a youth center in your local area or that stray animals should be looked after or indeed whether something should be preserved and put on display in a museum which kind of to bring it back to this National Trust issue, that's what I find really odd about this notion that the National Trust should just shut up and carry on preserving the nation's history without politics. Like, even if it should do that, which I don't agree it should, I'm not sure that it can do that. I don't know that that is possible because it is a political choice to put things on display. Um, And I think what's really interesting is that this conversation has come up again in the same week um, that we've had the news about this Brexit museum. You're absolutely right. And it is this these ongoing rows about what is political and what is not political that made me so very intrigued by the recent news that the Charity Commission recently granted a campaign to open a Museum of Brexit charitable status. So 
Trustees of this newly created charity include Lee Rotherham, who is the former director of special projects at Vote Leave, and Jim Reynolds, the honorary secretary of the Campaign for an Independent Britain. Um, And they're now seeking to raise £1 million to fund this project to open a museum of Brexit. Major supporters listed on the charity's website also include Baroness Hoey, who, you might remember way back in the mists of time, joined Nigel Farage on his infamous Brexit flotilla. She is quoted on the museum's website as saying the great struggle over sovereignty deserves to be recorded for posterity. Well, according to reports in the Guardian newspaper, this project was only granted charitable status on the condition that the museum was politically neutral. And the website maintains that the charity, which was initially going to be called the Museum of Sovereignty, uh, according to an older version, uh, they maintain it's going to tell the story of the referendum campaign and the vote in 2016 without bias. I have to say, though, from where I'm sitting, it's pretty hard to imagine how a project like this could be truly realised in any apolitical, politically neutral way. And that's the thing, right? It is political to say that this story is worth telling and that this campaign should be preserved. When we put something in a museum, I mean, you know, it's not just that we preserve it. We put it on display and we say it's important. We literally, in some cases, put it on a pedestal and 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 say that it is important. So even if this museum can somehow fulfil their promise to be politically neutral, which, given the trustees involved, sounds, sounds like a big ask, like they've not necessarily set themselves up to succeed that well, even if they can somehow do that, it is as much of a political act to say these pamphlets and placards help to sway people to vote for Brexit as it is to say, hey, this house was built by money extracted from the empire and these sugar tongs were used to serve sugar produced by slaves. That is a political act. And that is actually all the National Trust have been accused of is saying that. So it feels just strange, perhaps, to say that one is an unacceptably political act by an organisation that should know better and the other is an organisation that can be founded on the same basis. Absolutely. And I merely hope that the powers that be are ready and waiting to scrutinise this brand new charity with just the same robust energy that they have recently bought to the National Trust, because that is fair. Over the Easter weekend, the Times ran a story under the headline, Oxfam is as toxic as ever, harassed women told staff. Uh, This article alleges that in a farewell email to colleagues earlier this year, a staff member had described her personal battle to get Oxfam bosses to investigate her case. She said she was aware of five country offices where safeguarding and bullying issues are well known, but the perpetrators remain in employment. So a quick recap on the Oxfam story for anyone who's been living under a rock for the last three years. Um, The commission opened a statutory inquiry into the charity in early 2018 after it emerged that Oxfam had failed to adequately report the extent of sexual misconduct allegations against project workers in Haiti, dating from 2011. So this story initially appeared in The Times and uh, was taken up by the national media and was, you it was enormous and led to government inquiries and a much wider scandal and examination of safeguarding issues within the international development sector. Uh, the commission opened the statutory inquiry and you know, concluded it by calling for a complete overhaul of the charity's culture and practices and placed it under regulatory supervision that they were basically just going to be checking in and making sure all of those changes were made. Mm. In February this year, they lifted that supervision and sort of said, you know, they feel that Oxfam is making good progress. But the Charity Commission has confirmed it was aware of the fresh allegations of bullying and sexual misconduct at Oxfam when it lifted its regulatory oversight of the charity in February. 
Oxfam has suspended two staff members over the recent claims and said it has been investigating the concerns since November and keeping the regulator up to date on its progress. Despite lifting the statutory supervision, the Charity Commission said it was continuing to engage with the charity as part of its standard regulatory oversight and it had made clear that effective safeguarding was never complete in its previous report. And it was just last month that Oxfam was told by the government that it could resume bidding for aid funding after the three-year hiatus. It's been a really difficult few years for Oxfam and it's really disappointing to see this kind of thing still coming up. But I also think with all the revelations and conversations that we've had since the scandal broke in 2018, we're much more aware of the deep-seated issues within international development and within the wider charity sector. You know, it, it does see it did seem previously that Oxfam was making really good progress. You know, we've spoken to Sarah Nell Benjamin, for, um, who has been part of kind of changing that culture um, for the magazine. Um, and, you know, without wanting to excuse terrible behaviour, change was always going to take time. It was never going to happen overnight. But at the same time, there is rightly a lot of focus on how Oxfam handles these issues now. If these cases are going to come up and, you know, part of this woman's allegations were these were things weren't being dealt with. And that is the thing for Oxfam. They do need to be dealing with these situations and being seen to deal with them well. So hopefully they can get that sorted and, and kind of get on with doing the important work that they do. So next up, we've got a story that could very easily belong in our coronavirus care package. It's a little bit of good news for you. Um, So the London Marathon organisers and the family of the late Captain Sir Tom Moore have launched a major fundraising challenge event to mark what would have been his 101st birthday. They are inviting people to take part in the Captain Tom 100 by coming up with challenges based on the number 100 to raise money for the Captain Tom Foundation or a charity of their choice over the early May bank holiday weekend. So that's from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. The challenge was announced a year to the day after Second World War veteran Captain Tom Moore began his own challenge to raise money for NHS charities together by walking 100 laps of his garden before his 100th birthday. His efforts caught the public and media attention and it raised £38.9 million, including gift aid for charity. Now London Marathon are encouraging participants in the Captain Tom 100 to take part in this challenge in any way they want. Whether it's walking 100 steps or running 100 metres, to scoring 100 goals, baking 100 cakes, building 100 sandcastles, flipping 100 pancakes, it can be anything at all, inside or outside, as long as it's in line with current government social distancing guidelines. Participants will be invited to share their challenge on social media using the hashtag CaptainTom100. And more information can be found at www.captaintom100.com. So this event echoes the 2.6 challenge, which the London Marathon organisers ran last year on the weekend when the marathon was due to take place before it was postponed as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, So in that one, participants were encouraged to undertake a fundraising activity based around the numbers 2.6 or 26. That event raised £11 million for 4,000 charities and broke the record as the largest collective fundraising effort to date. So, you know, these events, I think they really do capture people's imagination. They do really um, bring people in. So, um, and I actually, I took part in the 2.6 challenge last year and it was a lot of fun. You did. I did. That bath photograph. No, hang on. That's going to sound very long <laughs> if I say that. Ah, let's dial that back. Would we like to give the listeners some context for that? Yeah. 
Uh, Rebecca did a challenge whereby she wore 26 different fancy dress costumes in 48 hours or something like that or was it over the course of a week? It was it was the course of the weekend I think I, I think I said 2.6 days because I had the Friday off work so I did half the Friday was prep so it was over two days I was and the idea was it was making costumes out of things I already had in my house yes I wasn't allowed to kind of buy anything in new and to very very much clarify when I say I very much enjoyed the picture of Rebecca in the bath <laughs> she was dressed she was dressed as the little mermaid as one of her costumes and I what did you make the tail out of can you remember uh I think it was some a green scarf a couple of green scarves I had sort of tied around my my waist and pinned into yeah. place I think that was it and you were holding a fork I was holding a fork and looking you know wonderingly at it yeah sufficiently disney princess (laughs) if we can dig it up let's put the photo in the show notes um yeah it was a wonderful wonderful costume challenge um i just remember loads of people got involved on twitter really enjoyed them um so you know will you be reviving that for to to do a hundred costumes in three days absolutely Uh, I don't know. Um, it sounds like a lot of effort, and I'm I, I, I worry that my husband might decide he's finally had enough of this crazy lady he's been shacked up with for for a year. Um, I mean, maybe if 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 listeners of the podcast think I should do that, tweet me. Um, you know, I feel like I feel like there was a novelty thing that made it quite successful last year. I don't know if people would be so into it this year, but yeah. There's a novelty thing. So yeah, if if you want me to do it, tweet tweet me, tweet Third Sector, let us know. I'm at Rebecca K. Cooney at Third Sector. Yeah. Tell us. Tell us that I should I should do this thing. Please don't. Please don't make me do it. Um, yes. And yeah, you can find the costumes. Uh, I don't I think the, the fundraiser is officially closed. But if you want to donate money to I was doing it. Um, in aid of uh, the National Emergency Trust and Women's Aid. Uh, so if you want to donate to those charities, do feel free, I guess. That that seems like a... I should give them a plug. So each week we bring you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story that we've spotted in the sector. We have one this week. Rebecca, what do you have for us? So this is the staff at an MOT and service garage in Kidderminster. They are, quote, washing their mouths out for Bowel Cancer Awareness Month. Um, so, uh, like many garages, it's not uncommon to hear the odd profanity at Offmore Road Garage in Kidderminster. But staff are converting their bad language into pounds and are donating two pounds for every swear word this April in support of Bowel Cancer UK. Uh, the director, Neil Chapman, said, uh, The charity is close to my heart and our potty mouth swear pot is one of the many activities we are running this month to help raise funds for the charity. They're also donating two pounds for every vehicle service repaired or given an MOT at the garage throughout the month. Um, and they're conducting an online raffle with prizes including kind of a front door makeover uh, vouchers to spend at tesco uh, and more and uh, funds for their efforts will be paid to their gofundme page where the public can make donations to help them reach their 1000 pound target uh, so they're on gofundme if you search for offmore road garage on gofundme you'll find it how much money do you think we could raise if we introduced a third sector editorial swear jar for a whole month I mean, that would simultaneously make me very charitable and very, very, very uh, hard up. Um, <laughs> it might actually just be easier to give the charity's bank account details to Haymarket and have the company pay them my salary directly, I think. That's a very, very brave assertion to make. Um, ha- have you Have you heard me? I have. <laughs> I have. 
I think there are certainly some members of the editorial team who would probably end up shelling out a little bit more of the others. And to be honest, I suspect that Rebecca, you and I would be uh, the guiltiest parties if we were ever to do a challenge like that. Yeah, we're just lovers of language. And, you know, we don't like to see any words left out. Absolutely. So the best of luck to everybody at Offmore Road Garage um, for this challenge. May you all... <laughs> May you all moderate your language through the month of April. No, not moderate. Don't moderate. You turn the air blue. <laughs> We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, The Third Sector Podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We will see you next week.